Our sermon reading this morning follows on from the first reading. So if you've still got your Bibles marked in that spot, 1 Samuel 17 and picking up from verse 43. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the, to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharaim road to Gath and Ekron. Good morning. Uh, my name is Mark Grieve. I'm a member of the 5.30 congregation and it's good to be here this morning, especially uh, addressing this passage. It's such a, a well-known one and a great one. Well, thousands of years ago, young Israelite men and women would sit around fires and tell stories, stories that captured their imagination and spoke of heroism and courage and conquests, stories that reminded them of who they were or would like to be and stories that told them about God's power and faithfulness to them. And perhaps the story that was told more than any other was the story of David and Goliath. Now, since that time, we've, stopped not, uh, we've not stopped telling that same story of the underdog that takes on the superior opponent and wins. I think it's our favourite theme. And for me, it was the Battle of the Alamo that captured my imagination as a young man growing up through the lyrics of Marty Robbins' song. Back in 1836, Houston said to Travis, get some volunteers and go to defend the Alamo. And the men came from Texas and from old Tennessee and joined up with Travis just to fight to the right to be free. And then it goes on to say, 185 holding back 5,000, five days, six days, eight days, 10, Travis held and held again. Any Marty Robbins fans? <laughs> some of you have heard that one. And then the movies captured my imagination, Star Wars and Braveheart and Lord of the Rings, I wanted to be uh, like Luke Skywalker and William Wallace and Aragorn. And of course, I wanted to be like David, full of courage and faith, 
seeing injustice and having the guts to do something about it. Well, David was our example. He showed us how to overcome our fears, the Goliaths in our lives. But what if the story is not about that? What if David is not our example at all? What if David had another message for his most... What if God had another message for his most important story? So I want to take you through that story now, a little bit earlier than what we read in the Bible passage. And I want you to close your eyes, cast your mind back 3,000 years ago, replace the busy suburban streets of Shell Harbour with uh, the sparse countryside of Judea. Small trees litter the gently sloping hills. A distant call of a jackal is all that's usually heard in this part of the world, except today. There's the clunking of boots, the clinking of armour, the voices of men carrying fear as heavy as the weapons in their hands. There's tension and anger, and nerves fill the air in the Israelite camp. Several hundred metres away, on the other side of the valley, another army assembles, an army that's superior in every way. They have bronze weapons, not just farming tools. They have fortified cities, not glorified villages. They have five kings, not one who's terrified and hiding in his tent. But most of all, they have a giant, a man from Gath who stood over eight feet tall. He towered over Saul, who stood a head and shoulders above the average man. He was Goliath. His bronze armour covered most of his body and weighed as much as a man. His spear was so heavy and penetrating that it could smash a man's bones like rock to pottery. Goliath opened his mouth and, like rumbling thunder, declares Israel send out a champion to fight him. The name Goliath actually means champion. He would fight on behalf of their, his team, his army. And it wasn't uncommon for armies to do that, to send out a representative. It was a, a strategic, a cost-effective and life-sparing tactic. One man represents everyone. If he wins, you win. If he loses, you lose. Now, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, you'll be familiar with this idea. When Tyrion Lannister uh, called upon someone to fight on his behalf, him being a small man and not a great fighter, uh, he, he called someone to do that. It was called trial by combat. And if that man won that fight, then he was free, and if he lost, then he would die. We do a more civilised version of that today when we appoint a barrister to represent us in court. But even still, if he's a good barrister, we get free. If he's a bad barrister and not very eloquent or good at his job, then you suffer the consequences. Well, for 40 days, this towering war machine, this Philistine champion, taunted the Israelites. Now, meanwhile, young David has come to the battlefront to give his brothers some food sent by his father. And he hears the obscenities of Goliath. He begins to ask questions about what's going to be done to remove this disgrace from Israel. And he sees there's anger amongst the men, but overshadowing that is the shame and fear. They've literally just run from Goliath as he stepped forward now. So David continues, what will be done to the man who defeats this. And he's told you'll get great wealth, you'll get the hand of Saul's daughter in marriage, and you'll never have to pay taxes again. And as appealing as this might be, no one is prepared to risk their lives. David's brothers hear him inquiring and they get angry at him, but David is not put off. Word soon travels to Saul that someone might be willing to go forward. And you get the impression that Saul's a little desperate here. He sends for David to bring him to his tent and to hear from him. And if Saul is discouraged by David's age and size, it does not take much persuading. Perhaps he thought of his own courage when he was a young man and his faith was still strong and true. But whatever the case, David just has to mention a few exploits as a shepherd, how he defended those sheep, 
and Saul's ready to send him. Dressing him in his own armour, which just falls off David, David doesn't want it anyway. He chooses the simple weapon of a sling and five smooth stones, and he goes out to confront Goliath. On seeing a mere lad, Goliath rages with fury. It's an insult to his strength and his skill. And cursing and yelling like a mountain overlaid with bronze and iron, he descends upon young David. Now, if this was Star Wars, a voice would say, use the force. If it was Luke, uh, sorry, if it was Lord of the Rings, Frodo would perhaps slip on the ring right now. But it's the Bible. And perhaps David hears now the words and the command that's repeated more than any other in Scripture. Fear not, for I am with you. And it's no Hollywood production, is it? The climax is way too short. No long drawn out battle here. It's a simple one sling shot. The stone hits Goliath between the eyes. I think helmets would improve in time. Given all that he wore, it seems a simple way to go down. But he goes down nonetheless. David runs to him with his own sword, cuts off Goliath's head, and the Philistines run for their life. Terrified that their champion is now dead, the Israelites pursue and strike them down. And it's all over. So what's the message? Well, usually we say at this point, David is our example. If we can have the same faith and courage as David, then we can defeat the Goliaths in our lives, whatever uh, stands in our way. But I, as I suggested earlier, this is not the message that God wants us to take out of this story. I think it's important to see here there's a counterfeit courage on display here. You see it firstly in Goliath's courage. And this is how I think most people in our world view courage. Trust in yourself, trust in your own skill and your ability, convince yourself that you will win, that you can do it, that you can overcome any trial that stands before you and just go out and do it. Uh, it's often called The Power of Positive Thinking. In fact, that was a book written by um, Norman Peale uh, way back in uh, the 70s. It sold more than 15 million copies, 42 translations. It's one of the most popular non-fiction books in the world today. And this is what he says in that book. Obstacles are simply not permitted to destroy your happiness and well-being. You need be defeated only if you are willing to be. In other words, believe in yourself. Have faith in your own abilities. Be positive and you will be victorious. That's how Goliath approached this battle. My skill, my size, my armour, my attitude will win. But I think Christians can also be in danger of a counterfeit kind of courage as well. We look at this story and we say, no, David is my example. I will win this battle by putting my trust in God and with God's help and my faith, Goliath will fall at my feet. And I think that's just a spiritualised version of Goliath courage. Now it's my faith that will determine the outcome. Uh, it's often called prosperity gospel or name it and claim it in some circles. And Benny Hinn, who was a a big proponent of this sort of thinking, has been quoted as saying this, Never, ever, ever go to the Lord and say, If it be thy will. Don't allow such faith-destroying words to enter your mouth. In other words, you need to believe that your faith will determine the outcome and you'll achieve your desires. Don't doubt, see what you want and go for it. I want to say that's not true courage at all. You can't go through life like that. Maybe you can approach a temporary situation like that. But what happens when you're told you have cancer? 
when one of your children die? What happens when you lose your job and there are no prospects of a new one? This sort of courage will be of no help when that rock misses Goliath and he continues to advance on you. You see, true courage is not trusting in yourself or your faith. It's not the absence of fear or even doubt. It is not self-determining the outcome. Rather, it is to continue to trust in God and to do what is right regardless of what happens. And scripture is full of such examples of men and women who have trust in God despite what they're going through. Uh, they've shown us what true courage looks like. Think of Job straight away, who after losing everything can still say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be his name. Or Habakkuk, who lived at a time when the fig tree had no fruit and there was no grapes on the vine and the olive uh, crop had failed and the sheep store was empty um, and the cattle had all died, he said, I still will be joyful and glad because the Lord God is my saviour. That's courage. Or Esther, who is persuaded by uh, her cousin Mordecai to go before the foreign king and to plead for the Jewish people, even though it risked her life greatly, she said, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. That's courage. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who are about to be thrown into the fiery furnace and say to uh, the king, we know our God can save us, but even if he does not, just know we will not serve you or worship your images. And then there's the great hall of fame set up in Hebrews 11 that lists the great Old Testament patriarchs and all the great things they did. And uh, after mentioning Abraham and Joseph and Moses, in verse 32, it goes on to say, mention Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. Through faith they fought whole countries and won. They did what was right and received what God had promised. They shut the mouths of lions, put out fierce fires, escaped being killed by the sword. They were weak but became strong. They were mighty in battle, defeated the armies and foreigners. Through faith, women received their dead relatives back to life. It's all so impressive. But in the same verse, the very same breath, the writer then says, others refused to accept freedom, died under torture in order to be raised to a better life. And then the last three verses talk about tortured and ridiculed and flogged and chained and imprisoned and stoned and sawn in two and put to death by the sword. Poor, persecuted, destitute and homeless. Now, counterfeit courage would only recognise the first ones on this list. The latest would be called failures. Not enough faith, didn't believe hard enough. That's why they failed. But in God's eyes, they are all victors side by side with the others, and perhaps even more glorified because of the suffering they went through and the perseverance they showed. So if David then is not our example, who is and what am I to make of David? Well, who do you think we should identify with in this passage? I think it's the scared and frightened Israelites on the hill. And what does God give to frightened people? He doesn't give them an example, he gives them a champion and a saviour. Tim Keller says this, God doesn't deal with our fears through inspiration and emulation. He deals with our fears through substitution and imputation. So he doesn't give us an example, someone to inspire us. He gives us a representative, someone to stand in our place. 
Our champion here in this story is David. He wasn't just fighting for Israel. He was fighting as Israel. If he lost, they lost. If he won, they won. He was their substitute. Remember what I said Goliath's name meant? It meant champion. Now, if you go back to Hebrews, straight after the Hall of Fame in chapter 12, it says these words, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that word perfecter literally means champion. Jesus is our champion, our representative, just as David was for the Israelites. Now, I'm not David. I'm not the saviour. My role is to recognise the saviour sent by God to rescue me and to fall on my knees in thanks and praise of what he's done for me. And I think we see this in the text as well, in verse 45. Look at David's words to Goliath here. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David's words recall the God of the Old Testament, who's rescued Israel time and time again. But something is new here. This is the first time in Scripture that one has claimed to come in the name of the Lord. So this is not just a great man of faith speaking. This is God's representative, his anointed one, his king. That expression that Dave used there, I come in the name of the Lord, was used on one other occasion in the Old Testament. It's Psalm 118, verse 26. It says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. And you might recall that that verse also occurs in the New Testament, uh, in the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verse 9. Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And then it's used by Jesus two chapters later. As his death draws near, he says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So just like David, Jesus is God's king, his anointed representative, our champion who comes in the name of the Lord to win a great victory for me. David was a foreshadowing of this great king, and Israel's victory over the Philistines a foreshadowing of a greater victory that Jesus would win for me over sin and death. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul wraps up his letter to the Corinthians, explaining the victory that Jesus has won for us. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. His success has been imputed, imparted and given to me. So true courage is not the absence of fear or doubt. It's the willingness to do what is right, even when it means pain and suffering. It is trusting in the one who knows all regardless of what happens to us. And here's the truth. We are ultimately safe with God. Yes, we might lose our health. Yes, we might even lose our life. But joy is on the way. And even death can't take that away. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, after it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and champion of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. 
How can we have this true courage? Because we know that no matter what happens in this life, it's going to be all right in the end. Joy awaits us all. How do we know everything's going to be okay? Because Jesus Christ is my champion and he will fight for me and he will never forsake me. He has defeated sin and death. What more do I need to fear? And so as, so as I approach the giants in my life, I don't trust in my skill or my character or my circumstances and I don't trust in my spirituality or my faith. I look to Jesus and I trust in what he has done for me. I know that if he is with me, nothing can stand against me. Win or lose by the world's standards, I'm victorious because God is on my side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great story, a story that has been told for thousands of years of David and Goliath. And we thank you, Lord, that David was your man, chosen to be a saviour for the Israelites, to bring them through that time. We thank you that in Jesus Christ we see the same story, one who has died for us and achieved a great victory over sin and death. Lord, may we trust in him in our lives, rely on him, and know that joy awaits whatever we go through now. In Jesus' name, amen.